Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I am Carolyn Ford, here with my co-host, Mark Snell. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carolyn. Good to see you. See, it's good to see you too. Hey, this morning we get to talk to uh, J.R. Williamson, who is the senior vice president and CISO at Lidos, not to be confused with CISO, because <laughs> I was just schooled in that pronunciation. There are no sissies. It's the CISO, right? <laughs> That's right. No sissies in cybersecurity. <laughs> Which is, These roles are not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. So Senior Vice President and CISO at Lidos, JR has more than 37 years of experience in IT, engineering, and cybersecurity, including almost three decades at Northrop Grumman. And recently, he spoke on a panel at Billington Cybersecurity Summit, which Mark, you and I both had the pleasure of attending. Yeah, that um, was great. Yeah, it was really good. It was all about protecting data in a zero trust world. And um, he shared some really interesting perspectives on data security. And there were some there were some surprises in that panel, I'm not gonna lie, that we'll get to, but we're we're really excited to be able to revisit the topic with JR today, unpack it a little bit more on tech transforms. And um, talk about how cybersecurity has evolved over time and how it continues to evolve with new technological advancements. So welcome to Tech Transforms, JR. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Good to see you, JR. Yeah. So All let's right. let's jump right into it. Um, I as I mentioned, you've had a tremendous career focused on IT engineering and information security with almost three, well, over three decades worth of experience in the field. So where have you seen the biggest evolution in cybersecurity practices? And let's go back to the 90s. I know that it's hard to think that cybersecurity was around then, but it really was. And I'll have you talk about that. Are there any any, um, practices or trends that you foresaw um, as well as any that you didn't see coming that really took you by surprise? Well, I think yes to all of those things. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think the, the hard part, if you go back to the 90s, is everything was sort of centralized. You know, we were shifting from mainframes to distributed systems, but distributed systems were still in our networks and still under our control. And, and so the attack surface back then was really so much smaller. And what's changed, of course, is this whole migration, you know, the cloud, the cloud, we've got to go to the cloud. And, and in so doing, you know, we've completely opened up the attack surface. And, and, and at first we were very focused on our networks and, and our network's okay. And then we opened up Rapture and said, hey, well, are our applications okay? Are, are our servers okay? And, and then, of course, it all became about the data and, and where is our data, who has access to our data, etc. And I don't even want to get into yet the sort of endpoints themselves. You know, the, the, the problem that as I distribute my applications and my networks and my data 
and everything's all over the place. Well, now my access to that from anywhere, any place, anytime, right? Isn't that the mantra? Any place, anywhere, yeah. anytime, which means the endpoints themselves are important. Uh, so now it's less about just who you are and the identity. Now it's about the application, the integrity, the posture management, your geolocation, you know, all these factors that now come into play uh, around, is my data okay? So that world has changed significantly since the since mm -hmm. the 90s. And that's, of course, increased our, our risk posture. And it's forced us to rethink about how do we protect what's most sensitive. And it's no longer about just protecting networks. Yeah, yeah. It used to be like the castle and moat analogy that we're all so familiar with. But it really, I mean, that was it, right? We had our we had our house, we had our domain, and and we protected it. And that's like you said, we're we're decentralized now. We're everywhere. highly decentralized and distributed. And people want to work differently. And it's not just the treatise around mobility. Yes, people want to work on mobile devices and things they wear on their wrists or maybe things they embed into their bodies or attach to themselves. You know, so sure, all that is the case. But I think what's really changing now is the fact that when we have that access, that access can be much more easily sort of taken over uh, because it's so ubiquitous. We're now having to defend against all these variety of fronts uh, to access that data and verify and validate that it is a it is a valid user who's got appropriate access from an appropriate location. It's okay for them to have access to this type of data and to do the function that they want to do. And I think that the thing we talked about at the Billington panel too, which is a big worry beat for me, is sure, yeah, okay, now I got it. Uh, my head's now wrapped around the data and that this intersection with users and 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 non-human users, uh, synthetic processes that interact with this data. So okay, I'm getting that and I gotta I gotta wrap these controls around it and protect it wherever it exists. And then the rise of the API, you know, because as as more uh, applications and data move into the cloud and that data is not provided under your control in a typical infrastructure as a service, but now it's all software as a service. So you're really counting on and relying on that provider to do all those security things too for you uh, on your behalf. And then wait for it, application to application. So SaaS to SaaS. And we don't see those interactions. You know, when when the SaaS provider I made a contract and a deal with to protect my data and provide access to that data according to our rules uh, and our governance, and then they choose to have an agreement with a third party mm. who's going to add value yeah. to their offering. I don't see any of that. Yeah, I don't get to agree to that. Supply chain. My rules don't come into play. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. You just brought I, up I a whole this huge a can of worms. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, this just gets, gets me thinking about. And I, I don't. If this is a stupid question, I apologize. But uh, is there is there like this mind? There's this shift in mindset around since the attack surface has gotten so broad and so big, almost uncontrollable. That it's almost like you know we're less concerned about keeping people out. Is that we are just like if they get in, they get in, but they're never getting out kind of a concept. Oh, wait, we're well, going to be Hotel California? Seriously? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You I'm, can no, 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 check I'm out just, any time you like. If, if it is, you can never, leave. ever leave. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Go ahead. Come on in. <laughs> there's a yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting models there. <laughs> yeah, I think from my point of view, it's 
it's not give up <laughs> because you know it's so hard and the attack surface has gotten more difficult. But I think it's about really zeroing in on the fact that we now have to uh, really persist these protections with the data itself. So it's less about uh, you know the the network. It's it, that's what we used to think about a lot. It's less about right. the server. We used to think a lot about that. It's less about the application. We used to think a lot about that. And now it's the data because the data used to only be accessible via the application business logic, via the server that ran it, via the network, you know, that connected to it. And now that's all changed. And this data can persist in many different ways, particularly when it's mashed up. You know, so I'm doing SQL queries. I've got this information over here. I got this information here. We're trying to, you know, democratize access to the data, the citizen uh, developers and the citizen knowledge workers who need to use this data to make great business decisions for their functions. We're given this access and now that data is whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. It's all over the place. You know, how do I keep control of it? And so really getting good at understanding what that data is what its use cases are, what it's appropriate for, and then putting governance around that element of information, which could lead to an insight uh, when mashed up uh, and analyzed. That's the concept behind the oil, you know, that the data is the new oil. And then ultimately uh, ensuring that those principles and properties around safety persist with the data regardless of where it is. Well, you have to, you have to, we have to talk about that, Carolyn, because I, I didn't hear that. But but um, data is the new talk, oil. Data is the new oil. I want to yeah. I want to understand your thoughts about what that means. Yeah. So well, and as before you, I just want to say as you're talking, Jr. I'm like, I feel like he's talking about securing air when you're talking <laughs> because and it, like it's such a, the way you describe it and everything that you're trying to do is just massive. It's kind of breaking my head. So. Before we go all the way to the data is the new oil, because that's I want to get there too, Mark. Okay. I want to know how you even approach this problem. In, I mean, Northrop Grumman, Lidos, they're two really big organizations. And how do you even, where do you even begin to lead the charge um, of, of protecting your data? <laughs> Well, I think first and foremost, it is a big problem. Let's just agree to that. It, it is a hard issue. Uh, but second is you got to find what's important. I mean, and not everything that you do is as important as the next thing. Uh, and so really zeroing in, sometimes you hear this term crown jewels. I think it's a little overused, but the concept is pretty easy to get your head around. You know, that there are some things in your organization we do that either drive competitive advantage uh, to the corporation that if lost or altered beyond your intention could cause harm uh, to your business financially, to your shareholders, uh, or it's customer data that you have that's super important that if lost could harm the customer mission and, and what they're uh, intending to do. Uh, and third, sometimes I'm working, of course, with partners in, in my supply chain and my ecosystem here. And sometimes I have their sensitive data uh, that's really important to them that I'm now a steward of because I use that in some meaningful way to produce some outcome for, for our joint customer, uh, whether I'm a prime contractor or a sub, you know, wherever I am in that supply chain, you know, protecting that sensitive information is also important. So knowing what those things are uh, is the first step. 
And yes, it takes effort uh, to, to go do that. That's a lot of conversations with a lot of different people and data owners to really figure out what's the most important. And yes, there is a regulatory landscape with some of this, you know, when you're yeah. working in the government contracting world. And so some of that is very prescriptive, but other parts of it are not. And, and you really need to develop an effective risk uh, understanding and a model around managing that risk to ensuring the protection of that data. You know, and look, I'm an engineer. Engineers, we make up words. Uh, I made up a word. Uh, I call it risk tacity. And, and risk tacity is this word that really talks about and describes the elasticity of rigor based on risk. And so the concept's simple. When risk is high, rigor should be high. Mm. But when risk is low, rigor should be low. Oh because rigor creates friction. <laughs> and are- friction is a speed problem. I can't. So Mark and I both worked for Raytheon. And as you're talking, I'm I'm having a little bit of, you know, flashback. I don't want to go as far as PTSD, but maybe a little bit like the whole classification problem. Oh, um, sure. You know, but I wish I would have had this philosophy. I would have put it up on my wall. Risk tacity. So rigor based on risk. So the higher the risk, it would have really helped me. This is um, a fabulous term. I love the con- it. The concept to me seems simple. It seems right? common sense. It's but but I think sometimes we overthink common sense. We do, and I needed that. <laughs> I needed that up on my wall as I'm trying to think. Okay, do I need to like lock this up? Do I need to burn it? Do I need to burn that part of my brain because I saw it? You know. <laughs> so exactly. So the first thing, the first thing, your first approach is to know what's really important. I love this risk tacity part of it to know where it is, and then to implement a model to protect it. That's right. And protect it wherever it needs to be. So so part of understanding uh, the data itself is the data's life cycle. How does it get created? How does it get managed? How does Mm -hmm. it evolve? What is its life cycle, cradle to grave? Who needs access to it? And when they need access to it, where do they need access to it? And does it, you know, it's part of its evolution. Does it get transformed? And and sometimes back to the Ristacity model, the data may enter the the content life cycle here at, at some level, but then over its evolution may raise uh, up higher. Uh, and, and as it gets raised up, your policy and your governance of, of safeguarding that data must also go with it. And so that's a really difficult thing to do, but, but that's, that's the job. That's the concept uh, that we're JR? trying to do. JR, is this conceptual for for you or is this uh, actually being applied? This, this oh, concept? it's both. Yeah, it starts with the concept, but it has to be fused. Like all good governance, governance doesn't work unless it's baked into the quality of your daily work. Uh, so you have to start with that sort of conceptual idea, that strategy uh, around data understanding, uh, and, then, and then come up with an effective data protection model that implements the strategy. I mean, I think we could agree structure follows strategy and not vice versa. So once I understand where I'm trying to go, now I organize uh, around it. And and that's the structure that you have to put in around data protection. Right. Did, did you help agencies with their strategies and implementation? We do. Uh, in fact, certainly from, from our Northrop days and, and definitely at, at Lidos, you know, as the sort of largest IT provider, uh, you know, to the federal government, you know, we, we, work this on many levels uh you know for our customers and this and this sort of 
way of thinking about the data is really important. But then operationalizing it in, you know, procedurally to actually take the concept of risktacity and baking it into that that daily work that we do is is really the secret sauce. What was the biggest roadblock or what, what's one of the biggest roadblocks that you've seen as you're helping agencies with their strategy and implementation? And if you want to mention one of the agencies that was the biggest pain in the ass. Um, I won't mention any of my super important <laughs> customers, but well, what I would say is that their existing structure uh, gets in the way of strategy. And, and so a lot of times people get it conceptually pretty easily, but then it's like, oh, I'll, I'll never be successful implementing that because of this structure, this structure, this governance model, this policy, you know, this person and the way that they think about the problem, uh, so et cetera. It's more of a so, modernization step that needs to take place uh, with some customers first before they can kind of take this approach. It's difficult. I mean, and and not to be pejorative about it, but you know, the the journey to cloud was very similar. I mean, it was really difficult to sort of decouple, you know, just years and years of learning that we built into our cyber defensive uh, posture, you know, for on-prem capabilities, and now to pull that apart. Mm-hmm. And to put it onto somebody else's network that you don't mm-hmm. control, or onto somebody else's server uh, that you don't control, that was a difficult problem. And so the structure of how we did things to keep things safe became the biggest inhibitor to adopting a new business operating model. And similarly, we're seeing with our customers because a whole lot of legacy uh, here, it's not their fault. In fact, sometimes you could argue it's our fault. We're the government contractors. We built a lot of this for them uh, to meet their mission outcomes uh, you know, over the decades. And now that has to be sort of bimodally redesigned redeployed and then brought in. And then the old system sort of just retired uh, in place over time because it is it is almost impossible just to do it piecemeal, you know, one by one uh, to well, try to transform. Then, JR, when the pandemic hit. So we've been we've been dealing with customers for a decade trying to modernize, trying to transform, you know, and the pandemic hits and lo and behold, boom. Agencies moved at light speed to the cloud. They moved uh, to support, you know, work from home. Okay, what happened there? I mean, for took took a lots, decade. Lots of cyber problems happened there. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 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 that opened up, uh, I guess, a can of worms in a lot of other areas. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, let's talk about data being the new oil. And I will say, you know, the first time I ran into that was Paul Shari's or Sherry, sorry, uh, book for Battlegrounds. And it's he, he's an AI expert. Um, and I read that and I was like, huh, this is interesting. And he also positions that whoever owns the data is going to win the AI race. So I don't I mean, that may have taken us down the AI road a little too soon because I want to talk about data being the new oil in context of zero trust and cybersecurity in general. So how does this mindset around data impact how agencies should be protecting their data and about how they're using it? Yeah, all great questions. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of different concepts out there uh, around, you know, data is the new oil. And so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of define it from JR's point of view. And then I'll talk about why it's not just 
the new oil because there's a there's another evolutionary element to this. I, I think. Uh, so first, data data as the new oil is really just here to describe that ultimately, and we've heard this whole story, you know, about data turning into information, information turning into knowledge, knowledge producing insights. Why is that important? Because we're here to make choices. We're here to make decisions. And, and almost every application that exists on the planet that is not just transactionally based is here for decision support. And the idea is computers augmenting humans, making choices, making good decisions. And when you put that into the mission context, you know, where that's sensor to shooter, that's fight or flee, you know, that's confidence intervals uh, around choices that we make uh, within the mission parameters. All of that is about getting to insights. What does the data actually mean? So the data in and of itself is really not that valuable. Just like oil in and of itself is not that valuable, but what that oil can be transformed into is what's really important. And that's really the concept, you know, the data is sort of that new oil. So now what are we doing, you know, as IT providers and as data and analytics type of providers doing to transform the oil or, or to transform the data? What are we turning it into? How quickly and how effectively and how responsibly are we able to convert that data into insight and to get that insight into the hands of a decision maker uh, to make a choice. Now, the decision maker in the future may not even be a human. <laughs> it may be a machine, you know, back to the sort of augmented intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not a thing I'm super excited about as a term, but I like this idea of how humans partner with machines more effectively. And, and so I think of it more as augmented intelligence. And then putting that into the hands of that decision maker, whether that decision maker is software with an appropriate and responsible and ethical constraints or a human, but that's the transformation. So we're transforming that data into something that is useful. And by useful, I really mean decisionable. So, so I, well, I want to, okay. So this is why I like to talk to people a lot smarter than me, because what you just said about data. Well, we better there, get somebody else on the call then. <laughs> well, okay. But you made me think about, so when I hear the word data, I immediately jump to the insight. I just think of it that way. But if we think about your idea of risk tacity, maybe it's not all data that we're protecting. Really what we're protecting is when we move up this chain that you just described, we're protecting the analysis and the insights. Or is it both, but just at a varying degree? Like when you put your security controls in place, it doesn't all have to be as tightly controlled. Well, and, and, and where does it need to be controlled? You know, because ultimately you're here trying to drive some outcome and we're really trying to use it. A whole data-driven enterprise strategy is that it's not just humans with their own personal insights and personal experiences. Those are great. You know, sometimes they're invaluable, uh, particularly when you're in the field, you know, on point, on mission, trying to, to solve a problem. But we know that we make better decisions as humans when we have better data. Uh, and ultimately, the better data can lead to a transformation of the data into that insight. And that's that, that's that knowledge management, somewhat intractable sort of journey, it feels at times. Uh, but that's really what we want. And, and that's competitive advantage. You know, because when you're on on a decision point and you're running against the clock, then whoever can come up with the insight first is ultimately the one who's likely to win. And and so the insight, and I should say, and this is where the some people 
think about data as the new oil and saying, well, is it really? Uh, because getting the insight in and of itself is important, but combining that insight with understanding of the problem we're trying to solve is really where the, the competitive advantage comes into play. Because sometimes somebody could give you the answer and the answer could be absolutely valid. But if you don't know how to apply the answer, is that really effective? And so, so there are other parameters, you know, to, to think about this too. But first and foremost, we need to mine the data, finding the data, understanding the data, uh, transforming the data into an insight, and then applying the insight to the business outcome that we need. And when you can do that, you can do that with speed. You can do that with efficacy. You can do that with responsibility uh, and ethical practices. That's a win. Well, and you're so talking about innovation, right? Well, innovation may be sort of the processes that underlie how you go do those transformative things. But what I'm really talking about is getting the data itself into a form, into a shape that can actually be actionable, uh, you know, for, for whatever your mission outcome is. Mm. So we, we've kind of talked a little bit about this, you know, over the last few minutes, augmented intelligence, AI, um, it seems to me it's so topical in conversations uh, today that it's that it is the it's the new new thing. How do you see AI transforming or impacting cybersecurity, data protection, uh, data transformation uh, as we move forward? Well, uh, I guess I'd say a couple of things about it. Uh, you know, first of all, it's scary <laughs> uh, because you know. Machines can move with speed uh, that that we cannot, and and that is a concern. Uh, I mean, imagine you know watching an episode of The Flash. You know, what is the most scary about The Flash? You know, it's the fact that I have a plan. You know, I'm using my skills, I'm using my understanding, I'm using my competencies to accomplish something. But The Flash could do it so much faster than me. I'll never win. You know, the flash can always outrun me, outperform me. And that's an issue with our competition. And when you think about great power competition, that's a concern. You know, so in the competitive market space, who's first to market tends to, on average, succeed, uh, you know, here. Uh, in great power competition issues, Very you know, he who's, he who's capable of both defending uh, effectively, uh, as well as projecting, uh, you know, force when required is the one who's most likely uh, to to succeed, and so so that becomes the concern around speed, and and these tools now have the ability to speed things up, and and so if you're in a defensive mode, you're now playing catch up. And you're constantly playing whack-a-mole and you're always behind. You're always behind, which means they're able to attack at will. And, and you're always playing catch-up. And that is a terrible way to spend your time. So trying to get ahead of that curve means you're also using the same tools. Now I feel like we're in an arms race uh, again yeah. You know, with, with AI because if the adversary is using these tools to effectively find ways to penetrate, 
then I need to use these tools to find those ways that the adversary can penetrate and close those things up before they get the opportunity uh, to exploit it. So just like we go back to those 90s, you know, with antivirus and, and, you know, we had the bad guys out here trying to develop ways to break in uh, and find novel ways to exploit. And we were out here trying to develop tools to discover their techniques very quickly. And so we're in this little race uh, between how quickly can I close a hole before they can find it. Now that has been exponentially, uh, you know, sort of expressed in, in today's technology. And there's no there's no guidance or governance or watchdog around this technology. You know. we're, we're getting there. Uh, I agree. I mean, this it's funny. We, we've been working in the technology space on this evolution of advanced analytics and then eventually to learning, you know, and learning machines and, and, and bringing uh, more capable uh, learning machines uh, together over time. And and different different techniques and methods of doing this. So we've known this is coming. We've seen the movie, you know, Skynet <laughs> rises and wipes out all the humans. So it's not like we're completely unaware. Uh, but being able to do this and do this effectively seems like it's just dropped on us, you know, yeah. here really quickly, uh, you know, with OpenAI and and ChatGPT. And there were models that were out there before, uh, but the really sort of uh, you know, human adoption of this tool and and it's uh, just sort of prevalence, uh, uh, you know, out in the uh, in the internet. I think has really really brought forward this and and this concept of large language models is also not new, uh, but it's one that's really come forward now. And the and the fact that it isn't the Rosie the robot you know, from the George Jetson days, sort of doing that broken sort of uh, computer sort of speak to now something that can readily replicate any of us, uh, you know, at any moment and speak to us in a language that we can easily understand and translate and then to maintain context of it. I'm not talking to the computer the way that I used to talk to the computer. Now it feels like I'm interacting with another human being. Yeah, I mean the and, usability and that really is, changes things. The usability for the masses is what's what it's all about. I mean anybody can access those large language models, that generative AI now. I mean I can type in a question it still isn't quite I mean I have my issues with it, but um anybody Well, and it is still nascent. You know, so so yeah. what what this will look like five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now will be very different. But but it's still pretty damn phenomenal. Oh, uh, yeah. When you think about the advance that we advancement we've had here in just the last couple of years, and imagine that speed of transformation, how that grows along Moore's law. And I know Moore's law typically thought of in terms of of hardware, but but when we think about this advancement and understanding, because it builds on top of itself every time, it's it's kind of blows your mind a little bit. Yeah. So one of the things that surprised me at the Billington uh, panel, everybody on the panel agreed that zero trust is a horrible term. And I actually had never <laughs> heard people like, I hate that term. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know you do hate it. So tell me why and like, what's a better term? Well, so I, I actually like the term earn trust or manage trust uh, better because, you know, all interactions require some sharing of information. And if I have zero trust 
I'm not sharing anything. It's a zero. Good point. You know, something times zero is always, oh yeah, zero. zero. <laughs> uh, so, so the goal here is really not to have zero trust. The goal is to have earned trust and then to manage that trust. So what am I bringing to the table to earn your trust? So that at the end of the moment, we can have some agreement to share some information with each other. And sometimes that information be really low in terms of value. So your trust factors may not be very high. Sure, I'm happy to share that information with you. I have no idea who you are, <laughs> but but I'm okay because this information is really not that important. Sure, here you go. Uh, versus something that may be much more sensitive and I may require more things from you in order to build or to earn that trust so that I'm willing to share this information uh, with you. And, and so that's really the concept, I, I think, of, uh, of earned trust or managed trust. Not a big fan of, of zero trust. I'll also say zero trust is not a new concept. You know, no. we, we've been doing this forever. Forever. Uh, but like cloud, we were doing application hosting, you know, not in our own data centers for years. And then we called it the cloud. Uh, similarly here, zero trust has taken on sort of its own marketing, uh, you know, kind of center of gravity. Uh, but the concept is, is a good one. And that is that at the end of the day, you just don't provide ubiquitous access to things. You actually have to build access and earn the access based on who you are, <laughs> where you are, what you're accessing uh, from, uh, and what information is appropriate and relevant for your mission and your role. So would you say that zero trust then really does boil down to identity and access management? It is about identity and access management, absolutely. Uh, but I would just definitely say that it's, it's, not, it's not just identity and access management because it's not enough that I know who you are and, and I have assurance in who you are. That's really important stuff. But what you're accessing this information from is also important because safeguarding the data uh, also has a, a parameter that we have to manage around where the data actually is. So, so you accessing the data from an unmanaged system or a system that's not got the right controls on it in order to appropriately safeguard that data is also important. So yes, I know it's you and you are authorized for this data, but you're trying to access it from a device that I cannot trust and is therefore not fit for use for actually storing, processing, or transiting that data. So I also need to detect that as part of this, this whole process you know, of agreeing that it's okay for you to access that data. So where you do it, how you do it, when you do it, what you do it from is equally important as who are you. Yeah. And I mean, thinking back to earlier what you said, to achieve this zero trust architecture or earned trust architecture, let's change the world, JR. Let's um, do it. <laughs> you have to start with like knowing what you've got, knowing what's important. So there's all of this like foundational work that has to happen first. And then this access piece is like, okay, here's the key to the door, but everything else has already been built. Right. And the access at the end should be the easiest part. There you because go. Because once you've done all this preparation, it should be the easiest part. And like you mentioned earlier, Carolyn, around uh, you know, your time at Raytheon and dealing with data classification, you know, this idea, it's blocking and tackling, and it is not sexy, but it is essential to understand what you have. And if you don't understand what you have, you have no idea 
uh, what's valuable to the adversary? Why would they want it? What's valuable to your customer? Why do they want it? So, so this is really important stuff to focus your time on uh, to ensure that you build that in. And then that sort of conceptual governance now gets inculcated into your running processes. That's fantastic. Think about things a little differently. Like I said, when I hear data, I immediately was jumping to the, the insight part of it and the application of it. And there's so much in between. Um, but my favorite thing today is the risk tacity. I'm keeping that, keeping that one. How about you, Mark? No, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, um, in your role, JR, you have to deal with managing and driving change with customers and within your own organization. It's got to be a huge challenge. I, you know, can't even understand that. How do you, how do you approach that with your customers? Well, I think I think first and foremost is just understanding their mission. You know, what do you do? Why do you do it? You know, why is that important uh, to you? And then just trying to figure out what problems are we trying to solve? I mean, when when you think about your mission, I'll put it in the context of playing tennis. Uh, you know, so when I go to play tennis, I like to win. I'm an athlete. Athletes like to win. And so I'm out there and I'm playing against an opponent. And generally speaking, I know what my weapons are. You know, my weapons are my ability to hit a forehand cross quarter down the line with top spin, with power, keeping the ball deep and keeping the opponent back. Because if they get closer to the net, it's going to make it harder for me uh, to be successful in my attack. So I know what my strengths are. My question is, what are their strengths? And, and what are their capabilities? And can I bring my strengths to play in order to beat the opponent? And as I do this from match to match and match, I start to realize, oh, crap, I'm not so good at that. I really need to improve my backhand because the adversary has realized Jarrah's got a good forehand. Don't hit the ball to his forehand. You know, uh, and, and Jarrah is good at hitting the ball strong from the baseline. Maybe if I slice the ball and chip it just over the net and force him to come to the net, I can take away his advantage. So when I think about the mission outcome for the customer, what are the things that we're really good at? So we're on point, on mission, we're, we're working within our upper and lower control limits. And then what are those areas where I'm not good at? So understanding where the problems are, how the adversary is looking at it, how the market is looking at it gives me the best chance of helping build a solution, not just thought leadership for the future. That's important to, to think about what's next, but then how can I actually turn the dials for them to get the mission outcomes that they need uh, when they need them? Yeah, how are you really? identifying where the problems are that you don't know about? You have to understand your customer's mission. I mean, if if you don't have intimacy and understanding your customer mission and what's important to them, you're already at a disadvantage. Uh, so how do you yeah. do that? First of all, you got to build some trust <laughs> with yeah. them. There's a reason why they're having a conversation with you. Otherwise, they're, they're not going to spend their time, you know, treasure and talent uh, on, on you. So build, building that trust that, hey, I can add value, uh, you know, to this conversation. And then uh, building that through experience, building that through asking questions, building that through joint experimentation. You know, Carolyn, you mentioned earlier innovation. You know, this concept of co-innovation is really important. You know, so whether that's a, a CRAD, a contract R&D thing that we do together, a CRADA that we put together, uh, but we can work on trying to solve these problems. And then the last thing I'd say is past performance. 
you know, I have solved this problem before and, and I've got, uh, you know, examples of where I've solved this problem and I can bring those stories to the customer to give them confidence that I understand the problem. I understand their mission and working together, we, we can solve the issues that they have. Yeah. You're really able to like zoom out, see the forest. You're not missing the forest for the trees. Zoom out, see what their mission is. Yeah. And then say, okay, here's how we're going to like move forward. So, okay, we're going to move to our tech talk questions. So these are just quick, fun questions, JR. Oh boy. What about any, any new TV shows or movies or books or any, or podcasts, anything like that, that you. All have? of those, all of those are great. Well, one, I'll, I'll just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the expanse. Have you watched the show, the expanse? So I started it and it start. I watched an episode and it really scared me. And so I stopped watching it. But so tell me more. Should I start so, again? So what I love, uh, again, I'm a sci-fi buff, probably not a big surprise being an engineer, but uh, you know, I like space and science and technology. And one of the things that's really interesting about The Expanse, it's got like a little cult following here, is that it's, it gets the science right. You know, who, who doesn't love Star Wars? I'm sure you guys have all seen all the Star Wars shows uh, and the movies that are out there. I mean, this just whole giant, ginormous uh, empire around Star Wars. And I love them and they're fun. And I always watch them. I've watched them all so many times. But the science is all wrong. You know, Luke, Luke and Vader, you know, avoiding themselves, you know, flying around, trying to get a lock on this spaceship. It's in zero gravity for crying Careful, out loud. Careful, JR. You're stepping on dangerous ground here. <laughs> well, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Well, also, I mean, Star Wars, both, both. It's both. The same problem exists in, in, in Star Trek, although Star Trek did a little bit better with it, but it's the same concept. You know, the whole idea that you're on this bend, you know, as, as you're flying <laughs> through space, you know, it doesn't work that way. And once you get going in, in, in a vacuum, you don't stop. You know, so to turn around, you don't do this really big banking thing. You literally have to fire your thrusters to stop your momentum, <laughs> flip, turn, and go in the different direction. So, but you know, you're saying it, the expanse gets it right. Yes, yeah, the expanse gets it right. Are you looking forward to the new, the second Dune? I am a big, uh, big fan of Dune. Uh, I read all the way up through the third novel, and then, quite frankly, it just got too weird. Uh, the it, the religion, you, you know, got, got all the got way got through the third before it got too weird. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought I thought the you know the first and second uh, were really great, and the third was good. Uh, but the whole God Emperor thing got got a little bizarro, yeah. and, and then the religion just made a turn uh, that I wasn't a fan of. But you know, love Dune, and and have seen every Dune movie that's come out too. And I think this series is really good. I the think best, they're being right? true to the book. I think yep. the acting is really good. I think Agreed. some of these esoteric things about how do you fold space, you know, and and how the guild uses the spice. The spice I think they're doing yeah. a good job making that. More more real. We got to let JR go. JR, yeah. we need to have drinks because we could geek out over like this <laughs> stuff, the sci fi stuff for hours. I could talk to you. Um, but thank well, you. Well, I love it. And uh, I'm always happy to talk about any of these topics. <laughs> you know, IT and cyber are fantastic. They are certainly a passion of mine. And, and of all the things I've got to do in my career, I mean, uh, I never wanted 
to be really uh, an information security puke. I've never been a no kind of guy, N-O. I'm more of a K-N-O-W kind of guy. I like solving problems. Uh, and so I didn't want to be part of that team that all they did is told people, no, you can't do that. Uh, but you know, when I did finally get my arm twisted and got into this, I thought this was the greatest thing ever. Uh, and what a fantastic mission. And this gives us the opportunity to manage risk back to risk tacity to solve problems in a safe way. And, and that's a, that's a fantastic mission. I have a great deal of passion for it. Well, you've been great. It's been, this has been a lot of fun, JR. I really appreciate your time and um, thanks for coming. My pleasure. On. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you listeners. Make sure you share and smash that like button. We'll talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.